0: This podcast is brought to you in part by Sing and Dog Double Reed Supplies. Sing and Dog Double Reads is an online double reed shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reeds for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit www.singanddog.com to see all of their products. That's s i n g i n d o g dot com.
1: Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality and service in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall is like a farmer's market filled with talented local regional reed makers selling their reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers. Who knows? One day they may be your reeds for sale. Add the code DRDGENDA, all capital letters, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool rule. Visit them at GendaIndustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just reed knives. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz And I'm Jackie Wilson, and you're listening to Double Reed Dish a podcast for oboists bassoonists and the people who love them hey everybody we're back for episode 21 of Reed dish galit what are we going to talk about today
0: We are talking about double-read love, romance, love. (laughs) I couldn't think of a third word. (laughs) Dating. Dating. Have you ever
1: been in a double-read relationship?
0: I have not been in in any double-read romantic relationships, but I have had many platonic double-read loves. How about you, Jackie? Well, it's it's funny
1: you should ask because actually I've I've had an epic double read love and so I knew we could not have this conversation without bringing my double read beloved into the conversation. So joining us for our dish, my very first boyfriend, my 6th grade boyfriend.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Ovalist
1: Ryan Walsh, Ryan, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey ladies, thanks for having me.
1: And tell the listeners a little bit about yourself.
2: Uh, Well, let's see. I'm an oboist English horn player. Uh, I live in New York City. Um, I teach reed making at Manus College of Music, and I'm the adjunct professor of oboe at Montclair State University in New Jersey. And uh, I sell oboe reeds at RyanReeds.com. And I play uh, around New York City on Broadway, um, and I'm the principal oboist in the South Florida Symphony. So, a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. That's to so cool. To yeah.
1: And we met. We grew up in the same hometown. Went to the same middle school, same high school. Mm-hmm. And do you actually remember how we became boyfriend
2: girlfriend? Oh gosh, it's, it's so long ago. I don't. I don't know if I remember exactly. <laughs> it is so but... long
1: ago. But does the word crazy camp
2: ring any bells? Oh my gosh, I forgot about <laughs> crazy camp. <laughs>
0: I need to know what Crazy Camp means. Crazy Camp uh, was our junior high
2: musical.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: and I I played, I was the lead. I was Adam Apple. And I was <laughs> Eve. I, I forget the... Eve l- Honeycutt.
1: <laughs> That's right. Honeycutt. That's right. So we were Adam and Eve in the musical.
2: Oh, my gosh. So, so random. Yeah, I, I remember... I, um, like, my best friends were like, oh, we want to go and do that, and, and we're just going to go, and we'll be the lighting guys in the back. And I was like, oh, that sounds fun. So I went to that audition, and I was like, yeah, I just I just want to do lighting, help out backstage. And uh, was it Miss Hand, who was the, the director <laughs> of it? Gosh. She was like, no, everybody has to sing a song, and everybody has to audition. And then they put me in the lead. Opposite you, and I was, like, horrified and terrified because, you know, performance anxiety and, and whatnot, but...
1: Yes, and there's one scene where you had to kiss my hand, and I remember uh-huh. that was, like, the biggest deal to me at the time. I was like, oh, my gosh, okay, this is a big deal.
2: Yeah. Do you remember, okay, we we had been, quote-unquote, dating, like, we were middle schoolers, whatever. We held hands, and it was, like, the end of the world. But I in 7th grade I ran track yeah. and y- you came to the track meet to watch me. I,
1: I was a supportive girlfriend.
2: Yeah, you were. You were so good. But then uh, after the track meet, I went over and we were chatting and I was like going to make the move. I was going to kiss you on the cheek. And you ran away. You got so scared. It was so funny. Is dying here.
1: Oh my gosh. Well and I remember your family went on vacation to the ocean while we were dating and you brought me back a earring necklace set with dolphins on
2: it. Oh god, I'm the worst.
1: It was awesome. And I was like, My dolphin jewelry from my boyfriend. Uh... I'm crying. I'm crying. (laughs) I'm crying too. My (laughs) eyeliner is gonna be like in bad shape. But oh yes, I was very scared, and so we mostly communicated by notes. And I was actually thinking on the drive into work today, I was like, "Do young people get the satisfaction of like note writing, or is it all texting?" Like I remember note writing in my youth was like such a huge, epic deal. Oh
0: yeah. All creative, like in the football.
1: Oh, I could fold football. in a bunch of ways. Yeah, I knew all the origamis.
2: Yeah, me too. I, I used to, my favorite was like this little balloon thing that you could actually blow up and it turns into oh. a, a little box. But
0: That's, it's a it's a lost art. You don't it get really that is. It is. But uh, I feel
1: like we have to share. So when Ryan and I would write notes back and forth, of course I played <laughs> the oboe at this time. Ryan, <laughs> share with the listeners how we would sign our our notes to each other.
2: Oh, it was so awful. We were the <laughs> worst. But it was um oboe plus obo equals love forever.
1: L U V The number four E V A.
2: E V A. So we
1: affectionately we still like write on each other on our birthdays or whatever. Obo plus Oboe. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Even though you haven't played an oboe in, gosh, how long?
1: I tooted a couple notes last week, actually. I played Ooh. a scale and was like, okay, this doesn't quite sound like I'm blowing in the wrong end. But, yeah, it, it, it was It was never for me. I like to feel like I have oxygen in my body when I play my no, instrument.
2: I, <laughs> I, I like to feel that way, too. But in, it's, in that, I guess oxygen for my body when I play uh, was not for me. <laughs>
0: so. But
1: we are not the only, you know, double-read puppy love, so we asked our listeners to send in some stories of double-read love. Galit, do you want to share one of the messages we got?
0: Cool. Okay, so, I'm sorry, I'm, so, I'm dying still. That's so funny. <laughs> okay, so here's the first listener submission. Me and my husband met in the bassoon section of the 2011 National Youth Orchestra of Canada. My first ever professional audition was his first time winning a full-time job, and we've passed the same per-service orchestra position back and forth multiple times. We're now both employed full-time as bassoonists, but not in the same place yet.
1: Okay, so youth Hmm. orchestra love.
0: (laughs) That is so sweet. I want them to win a job in the same orchestra.
1: I don't know. It would be hard for me to have like a significant relationship with someone who plays the same instrument. I think I'm
2: just too competitive. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know. I feel like if – if I were dating another oboist, I would always be compa- I'll always be comparing myself to them for sure. But like, what if what if they're worse than you are? Like, what if what if they're a terrible player, and then you have to be <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Oh, like, honey, I feel like I'd be lying great. all the time. Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> sounds great, honey. Sounds oh.
0: great. Well, it doesn't sound like this is the situation with this couple. They sound like they're both awesome. Yeah. Yeah. True.
1: Um, Ryan, did you have any <laughs> other double read loves after after our love, of course? Anyone else? Oh my
2: gosh. Yeah, I uh for some reason, I have dated like so many bassoonists, <laughs> At least at least 5. Wow. Yeah. I mean, one of them we we were together for a year. Wow. But um <clears throat> yeah.
0: Did it all stem from your first love? I think
2: so, like <laughs> The reason oboe plus oboe did not equal love forever is because it should have been oboe plus bassoon. We just didn't realize it yet.
1: It's been chasing me ever since. Chasing you. (laughs) As an act of love, we don't touch each other's reeds, but Charles sharpens my knives for me, and I process cane for him. No competition, just equal job distribution. I'm down. Sharpen Uh my knife? I'm yours forever.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's where I think that I would actually go wrong is that I would start demanding things. Like, I was really busy today. Why didn't you sharpen my knife?
1: <laughs> <laughs> sharpen my knife. Sharpen my heart love for you. Sharpen my heart. <laughs> uh,
3: that's adorable.
0: So here's the third submission. My then-husband also played the oboe, but didn't like making reeds, so I made his reeds for him. It was stressful and annoying because we had different reed expectations. In the end, we got a divorce. And he <laughs> continued to ask me to make him reeds. And I felt a little <laughs> sorry for him that he lost his reeds supplier.
1: <laughs> That's quite the palimony agreement.
2: <laughs> did, did they continue to make reeds for this person?
0: Doesn't say. Doesn't oh. say.
2: Because, you know, the.
0: I guess,
2: no. Okay. Yeah, that would be super weird. Like, how. If, if it was a really bad breakup, how are you going to guarantee that your readmaker doesn't, like, poison your reads or something? <laughs> like, sabotage.
0: Crack reads.
1: <laughs> oh, it doesn't uh. play at 440?
0: Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
2: um, you know, the, that. Um, relationship where the other person does stuff for you um i don't know uh do you know sherry seiler she's the associate principal oboe in the new york phil her her wife actually is a retired violist and to help out sherry she learned how to process oboe cane (gasps) learned how to adjust her gougers she sharpens all of her knives and it's it's amazing
0: what?
2: Yeah. That's that's, love. that's true love right there.
1: That
0: is true love. <laughs> that is amazing.
2: Oh
1: Seriously. my gosh. That's when you know it's real. Mhm.
2: Yeah. I mean and and it's not like it's another double replayer. It's a violist who learned how to do all this. I mean, that's dedication. Amazing.
1: Yeah. Oh man. Yeah.
2: Relationship goals. Relationship
1: <laughs> goals. <laughs> Well, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a blast. I know we at least made Galit's day.
2: (laughs) Oh my God. I died. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.
1: And oboe plus oboe equals love forever.
2: Love forever. Well, oboe plus bassoon now, right? Yes, exactly.
3: (laughs)
0: So my shout out this week is going to sound a little bit redundant, but I found another resource on deep work. A listener contacted me, uh, I guess last week or the week before about like more resources. So I've been looking for them and I found this really cool YouTube video, um, which is an animated book summary of Cal Newport's deep work book and I confess I still haven't read the book, <laughs> but I listened to that podcast, Hidden Brain Podcast episode again, and watching this video, and it gives you strategies on how to incorporate deep work into your day, so um, I actually played it for a class that I teach, and I think it's a good check-in to, you know, try to stay off, uh, you know the internet and you know like actually get your work done so um we will link to this in the podcast description and hopefully it'll be helpful for people who haven't yet had a chance to listen to that hidden brain episode um but who are curious about what this deep work is all about
1: cool and how has your deep work been going for you
0: well i was doing really great for the first Two or three weeks of the semester, and then I fell off the wagon but i 'm i'm back on the wagon right now it's all about <laughs> it's all about being selfish with your time, which as you know, can be very difficult depending on the needs of the people around you, you know, like your students and your coworkers and, you know, your peers and your friends and your family and your significant other. And, you know, it it takes a lot of discipline, and I'm still trying to figure out a way how to work it in consistently so I don't have really good periods and then periods where I don't do it at all. But, yeah, I'm working on it, and whenever I do it, I love it. It's hard, but I, I really – um. I get a lot of benefit out of having that time to only think about practicing or readmaking or whatever creative um, intellectual thing it is that I'm doing. Cool.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, my shout out is the new edition by Benjamin Cayman's and William Short of the MILDA twenty-five studies in scales and chords for bassoon opus twenty-four. Um, which is a huge standard staple of the repertoire for us. I personally use these etudes every day. I start with the Ula Christian doll drills and then follow up. He has you pick a key of the day, Um, which I'm still getting used to this whole let's warm up in B major thing. (laughs) but. I'm doing it. Um,
0: That sounds great.
1: (laughs) And then I do the two Milda uh, scale and chord studies that go along with that key of the day. So I've been working out of these. Uh, Theodore Presser, the publisher, was kind enough to send me a, a review copy, and I've been working out of these, and it's just flames, the old edition You know, it had a lot of um, sometimes they would carry the accidental, sometimes it didn't. And so you had to kind of do your harmonic analysis and figure out, oh, should this carry? No, it shouldn't this time, but it should other times. And um, they give really great notes. Um, Here's what you should be thinking of when you play these. Um, Here's what we recommend in terms of fingerings. Oh, hey, this measure that has tortured you for the past Fifteen years of your career. How about this fingering? Yeah, that's been kind of revolutionary for me <laughs> in many ways. Not thinking
0: from experience at all.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm super excited about this edition, and it is available through Theodore Presser um, and through um, you know a bunch of other sheet music retailers. And it's just it's time to replace your old beloved edition. I'll always keep mine around because it has old teachers' markings and stuff. But this is my go-to. This is going to make your life easier. So kudos to Benjamin Caymans and uh, Billy Short. Really beautiful edition. I highly recommend it. Awesome. Janet Ingle loves the oboe. She has built her business on providing high quality, handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Jenna Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly reed subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that's right for you. Double Read Dish listeners can use the code DISH, that's D-I-S-H, all caps, for 10% off your first order at jennetengel.com. JDW Sheet Music is an online store that specializes in original chamber pieces for wind instruments. The website offers a variety of music transcriptions of composers like WC, Bach, Piazzola, and Rachmaninoff. Owner and arranger Jessica Wilkins has produced over 60 chamber music arrangements featuring oboe and bassoon. Jessica's works have been performed at colleges across the country, as well as the 2015 IDRS conference in Tokyo, Japan. For access to the entire JDW sheet music catalog, visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com.
0: We are so excited to welcome Christopher Millard to the podcast, Principal Bassoon of the National Arts Center Orchestra. Our first question is pretty broad, but we would love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us about your training and educational journey and how you got to where you are today.
3: Okay, well, if I can remember that far back, that many decades, I'll try to do that for So, um, I was born and raised in Canada, and have had most of my career here in Canada, and I uh, grew up primarily on the West Coast, in Vancouver, B.C., and uh, during high school in the 60s, was consumed by music of all forms. Primarily, my interest was uh, in jazz piano, oddly enough, and I studied that, and I was reasonably competent for a teenager, although I wouldn't say that I was by any means... on the verge of being competitive in that very difficult field. But at some point around um, grade 11, uh, I had been playing saxophone and clarinet, such in the community bands. And like every bassoonist, uh, almost no one begins with that difficult beast in their hands to start with. It usually happens that you demonstrate some sort of an affinity for picking up an instrument and usually a, usually clarinet or saxophone, that was the case with me, and then uh, I was asked to, please, would you consider playing the bassoon? It's the story repeated thousands of times across the world for bassoonists and oboists, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Have you ever met anyone who started out on the bassoon?
1: Um, Occasionally, but it certainly is rare.
3: (laughs) It is. I sometimes see a a nine- or ten-year-old with a bassoonist in their hand, and it seems just on the verge of... uh, child abuse to me <laughs> <laughs> no anyway uh so uh I, I i kind of as i approached end of my high school years i i realized that i had m- much greater depth and affinity for the classical idioms so i um i started studying seriously the bassoon really not until uh grade 12 and and then i started university in vancouver this was in 1970, 47 years ago, and I studied for two years with the then-principal descendus of the Vancouver Symphony, um, a wonderful gentleman by the name of Roland Small, who is still alive. Roland um, the, the, Roland was an advocate of the whole French school of, uh, of flute playing and of wind playing, and he had been a student of the great French master Marcel Moise and he had a profound effect on my sense of aesthetics about the instrument. And Roland very much wanted me to to go to the most competitive school I could. So after two years uh, at the University of British Columbia, I went to Philadelphia to study with Saul Schombach and attended the Curtis Institute. And then during those years, I also became acquainted uh, with Moïse and his classes in Vermont. So I r- rather followed in Roland Small's footsteps in terms of the pedagogy that I was exposed to. Uh, I had what I guess you could say was the real left-brain uh, reductionist training that we got at the Curtis Institute, stemming from the tabito traditions through the Delancey traditions, and even to this day, the the way that music is taught at that school remains uh, kind of an objective, highly intelligent uh, approach to understanding phrasing, understanding color. At the same time, uh, my my later work with Moise became the, the really the right brain, the holistic thinking, the, the poetry, the ineffable stuff that's hard to describe. And I'm rather glad that I had the opportunity to pursue the organized training followed by the poetic training rather than the other way around. I don't know about you, but I often find that the people who go the furthest are those who are able to systematically figure out in an analytical way how music works and then support that through the human experiences of mm-hmm. of life and beauty and poetry and art. Sometimes, if you get too much of the right brain stuff first, it's a little hard to disorganize if you come to the uh, left brain stuff later. If, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I guess my primary um, my primary teachers were were Saul Schombach, who was a very special man. Um, a very interesting teacher, uh, the grand, grand teacher of, of many of your generation, in the sense that his students were your teachers. The amazing thing about Schombach, which I would say distinguished him from almost any of the great presumed pedagogues of the 50s and 60s and into the 70s, was the fact that he was so um, non rigid and so interested in the student becoming their own teacher and the interesting thing about schombach students if you look at them as a group is what a tremendous variety of approaches they ended up having as mature artists um, he was not dogmatic about readmaking. he was doc- not dogmatic about repertoire he he was all about using your brain to ask the right questions for yourself and I treasure the three years that I had studying with him because I think it prepared me for, a, for the inevitable, inevitable ups and downs and challenges in the profession and gave me the tools to be able to solve problems for myself. So, um, quite coincidentally, never expecting to return to my hometown of Vancouver, British Columbia, that ended up being the first audition that, uh, that I won and I won that position that had been held by my former teacher when he left to join the Boston Symphony, as second bassoonist, where he'd spent the final 30 years of his career. So it was an interesting process by which my teacher and my grandteacher flowed through me, and I filled that same position. And then, quite unexpectedly, I ended up staying in that orchestra for a very, very long time, uh, 29 seasons, until... 2003 when my old friend Pinka Zuckerman finally persuaded me to give a throw in the towel in Vancouver and and come and join him and these wonderful musicians in the orchestra here in Ottawa, Canada which is a very special place to work and I'm enjoying a very happy late career.
1: Whenever we have a guest who's been so successful orchestrally, our listeners beg us to ask for tips for um, audition strategies and that type of thing. And I I know you have your CD through Orchestra Pro, um, where you outline approaches to excerpts and that type of thing. But any description of the preparation process and that type of thing, I know our listeners would love to hear.
3: Isn't it interesting how excerpts are very much uh, taught as excerpts rather than as uh, lines within a score hmm. i I think that the 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 best way to approach your your polishing of excerpts is to study and listen to and look at the scores to so you can see the context of of what you're playing in. I am constantly amazed when a talented student will come and play an excerpt and I would say, now do you know what the cellos are playing here? And they look at me blankly. And the, the problem is that if you do not have a, an understanding of the tonal context and the harmonic and rhythmic context of what you're playing, then all you're left with is what your teacher has told you to do and that's often beautiful, but it's not always universally applicable. And the problem with auditions is, of course, audition panels, because they're faced with such enormous numbers of candidates for positions, and they're faced with making evaluations in the rather cold and sterile environment of being behind a screen, creates an environment in which the first round of auditions are essentially finding ways to get rid of people. It's cold-hearted fact. The ultimate decision about hiring someone because they touch you artistically gets deferred until the very end of the process. So when students ask, how do you achieve success in an audition? You need to put yourself into the, into the position of those individuals who are on the other side of the curtain, some of whom may be vicinists, but most who aren't. And they will all be listening to these excerpts with their own hearts in mind and with their experience of playing these major excerpts in mind. And the truth and the knowledge and the skill of the candidate is going to depend on whether each of those listeners on the other side of the screen are able to comfortably experience what's intuitively in their ears and in their memory about how these passages go. So if you, if you play Excerpts, just as your teacher taught you you may or may not appeal to specific individuals on their Panel, but if you play what your teachers taught you and what you've heard from other players all within the context of real knowledge of what is going on with underneath every excerpt you have a much better chance of Demonstrating that orchestral wisdom, which makes a candidate desirable So I in a nutshell that's really as simple as it gets. I think there's a lot of intellectual laziness, and people expect to be spoon-fed by their teachers, and they don't go to that extra trouble of doing what is nowadays so incredibly easy. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, if you want to know, a you and an oboist. So if, mm-hmm. if someone asked you the context of the funeral march of the heroic symphony, when you, if you had been a student, When I was a student, the only way I learned how to do this is I spent an awful lot of money buying LPs. There was no internet. There was no easy access to scores except going to the school library and going through the process of signing out a part and signing out a a score. Nowadays, it takes about 15 seconds to go onto IMSLP, and the vast amount of orchestral repertoire, minus a few copyright exceptions, are available to us instantaneously, as well as a thirty or 40,000 free recordings available from, through most university uh, library websites, through Nexus or through YouTube. So the wealth of information is out there, and yet I have to say, and I hope I don't sound like a crotchety elder player, but <laughs> I find that many young players still do not have that discipline. So just to finish up answering your question, what I do with my best students is certainly at the end of the spring semester, for example, I would say during during the summer, here is your assignment, and I will give them a long list of the, the musical equivalent of the Ten Commandments, which is to say these are things that simply you must know, so the Beethoven symphonies, the Brahms symphonies, Schubert, Mendelssohn, all the major stuff and i make a long list and i say if you devote one hour a night for the next three months you're going to get through 40 pieces and you do it by sitting down opening up the score on your computer screen and listening and following along the score you do that and then you follow along your part and your second reading and you're already going to be way f- further ahead than the vast majority of your colleagues in whatever college university you're at there is a wealth of easily accessible information which immeasurably deepens uh, your potential and your skill set as a as a young women player.
0: Um, I was con- just going to say that it makes me wonder if the um, ease with which we can access all of these recordings and scores um, actually makes us more complacent and doesn't, you know, when you have to spend all of your money on LPs, then the attention that you give listening to the LPs is different than just logging on to Maxo. Do you know what I'm trying to say?
3: I think you're absolutely, absolutely right on. Things things that we don't, that, that come too easily are hard to value.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the, the depth with which we we learn. I think that's probably a little bit different.
3: And I think I think that what needs to enter this conversation too is setting out on the table what many of us are concerned about, which is how our um, habitual and addictive uh, relationship with our with our screens, especially our smartphones, has really changing our ability to focus for long periods of time on anything. Mm-hmm. I, this is something that I try to watch for among my my students and for myself too. I'm increasingly aware of how important it is for me to turn off the turn off the iPhone, not have it on all the time. And especially i'm I, I'm extremely aware of how the um, the way in which digital information reaches us on our screens, they, it, it, there's so much there, and it's so easy to spend 45 seconds on a subject and click a screen and be in a completely different field. that I think it's robbing us of a very, very important ability, which is to concentrate. You can't concentrate on one topic for seven or eight minutes. Uh, how are you going to have the... Discipline to perfect your skills on your instrument. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I, I, I really do think that this is becoming a catastrophic problem in our society, the change in our abilities to focus and concentrate. Did you know, I read this recently, that addiction rates among American teenagers, addiction in terms of drugs and alcohol, those rates are down significantly in the last decade? But what's replaced them is not basically the same uh, psychophysiological problem, which is that they are getting their their chemical doping in their brain from uh, their digital interfaces. Mm-hmm. So the addictions that we th- that problem kids used to have at, at 15 or 16 with with alcohol or marijuana or whatever has now been given over to addictions. To, to the same kind of uh, brain-satisfying brain uh, processes uh, by being constantly on their screens. So, you know, it's a tough time to be an 18-year-old university student because, as you said, the ease with which information flows to us makes a, a wise use of our time and a wise use of all of that information very challenging. And as as teachers, uh, I'm sure that both of you are exposed on a daily basis to seeing with your students uh, a wide range of abilities to deal with with these essential learning skills.
1: Yeah, and I I think... It is a good point that Galit brings up, and I even think about, you know, the kind of more romantic side. I was after LPs but pre-internet, and so if I wanted to listen to a recording, I had to go to the library at my school. And those are some of my most fond memories, falling in love with the Western canon and, you know, falling in love with a certain composer and loving this piece So figuring out what else they wrote. And I think about, you know, do my students today have that experience when it's just a link that they click?
3: Yeah, I I agree with you completely. And perhaps what we have to do as individuals is figure out with each student, how do we help guide them? In my case, if I give a a student a specific list. I say I want you to check this off, and we're going to go through in the fall uh, what you've done. Then, then I know whether it's been done or not, and it gives mm-hmm. them it gives them some guidance. And as you say, it would be very in- very easy to fill up twenty four hours a day, three hundred and sixty five days a year, and only touch one thousandth of a percent of what's available to us on the internet. However, if you if you just sort of uh, streamline. the the personal assignment, say, okay, I'm going to spend one hour a day or 90 minutes a day, that's all, every day for the next three months, and I have a list so that I can go to, to you, Jackie, and say, Professor, I have listened to all of this stuff and I have some questions about it. And if you follow intelligently, following, if you can read a score of a Beethoven Symphony, and listen to it and follow along. The next time you come to that, and the time after and the time after, the familiarity will build rapidly, and your ability to inform your own work and your own self-questioning will uh, will develop uh, commensurately. Um,
1: this is maybe an obvious question, but you've taught at some of the best music schools in existence do you find there is a connection between the students who are willing to do this type of work and the success you see them go on to achieve
3: without question without question and I, uh, when i when you say that i've taught at good schools that's true i have not been a consistent teacher at a place like uh curtis or colburn or rice uh, uh, although i visited these places the uh, I think that it is part of the conservatory environment, the academic environment, um, that this kind of focus and this kind of discipline is is expected. Now, at a university where where you have a broad range of talents, I taught for seven years uh, in Chicago at Northwestern University, and generally we had a class of maybe 15 or 16 business. And within that group you had... Uh, perhaps every year, six or seven who were very, very seriously competitive and focused on a traditional kind of bassoon career. Then you would have some who were interested in a music education stream, and then you had still others who were pursuing a double degree stream, science and bassoon performance or engineering and bassoon performance. So you, know, you have a very broad range of characters, personality types and expectations to be fulfilled. And they're all a little bit different. But what I would say is that obviously in music study or in the study of biosciences or whatever you choose, even accounting that the ability to focus and to organize your time is the, is what separates success from mediocrity. If
0: you come to an audition having listened extensively and studied extensively and you find that you still play poorly or below your standard or you don't advance um, because you're experiencing symptoms of performance anxiety, what would you tell those students and those pre-professionals? Well, of course,
3: this is the number one problem, isn't it? The ability to um, to put all of your thousands of hours of hard work into four minutes and and – do, do that without a high rate of accidents. It's really tough. And I wish that there was another way to, to hire for orchestras. But, you know, <laughs> the, great, uh, the great British uh, leader, Winston Churchill, said that uh, democracy was the worst form of government except for all the others. And I'm afraid that hiring um, musicians behind screens is the worst way to hire them except for all the other So, it's something we have to live in. What do you tell them? Okay. So, there's two parts of the question. One is the the nature of preparation, and the other is the actual physiology of the moment. So, addressing the latter, of course, there are all sorts of um, material sources that are out there for students who are dealing with performance anxiety. And they run the gamut from auto-hypnosis, through uh, sports medicine through uh, uh, through beta blockers and you know, things as simple as understanding your own personal body chemistry, what difference does eating a banana make to your potassium level and how blah 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 so there 's lots of that available and nowadays there 's so much of that available on the internet and and the books that are out the don green books and there there are so many. Um, holistic approaches to performance anxiety but someone like me, who's not an expert in this, is, is just best to refer my students say, here's some books which I know a lot of people are finding help with. And I would leave that subject basically alone because my expertise is not as a psychotherapist. My expertise <laughs> is in the former problem, which I'll address now, which is the preparation uh, for that happens up to the day of the audition. So I've already addressed what I think is the the main weakness, which is the lack of holistic understanding of of excerpts. I I did mention a few minutes ago that the initial uh, screening processes in orchestral auditions, because they involve having to choose between dozens and dozens of people behind a screen on any given day, um, it, it ends up being that you're looking for... Common problems so that you can tick off a box and say no, I don't want to hear this individual again So what are the biggest problems that can be addressed? Well, they're the obvious things that we've all heard from day one and they remain the most obvious things and the most difficult things rhythm and intonation If you don't have those right everything else um even if you may express yourself with great beauty and individuality and your sense of a, of a, of a line, the beauty of your sound, all of that stuff is going to get cast away if you can't do things with good rhythm and with uh, good intonation. And I think to be, uh, it may surprise you to know that I've been, I'm just entering my 44th season uh, playing full time professional principal bassoon in a good orchestra. I would say that 90% of my attention in my own preparation at home and in my work at,
0: uh,
3: on stage is intonation. And if you had asked me when I was 22 to say that when I was 65 all I would be thinking about would be intonation, I'd probably say, get out of here, I think I'll choose a different shield. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: I mean, you would think that after all these years, I'd be going and having played most of the repertoire many, many times, I would think, oh, I just get up there and enjoy the beauty of the music. But it remains a craft. And our, and our identi- self identities and our contribution to the collective whole and the success of our relationship to our colleagues, especially when you have really high level colleagues, is that you have to be able to exercise the craft to the best of your ability before anything else. So I cannot tell you how hard I work with my readmaking and my daily work just trying to play in tune. And Jackie, you will understand this, that the basic number one problem in this regard for the sinus is the tenor, tenor range. Mm-hmm. How very difficult it is to play from top line B-flat up through G, where most of the, many of the important, Expressive solos and repertoire exist. It's very, very difficult to play at fine fingerings and fine reeds and 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 get past what what the bassoon wants and get to what other people want to hear. I have a big bone to pick with the fact that so many bassoonists prioritize color over intonation, and it's all very well to choose fingerings that have the most resonant sound. But if your fundamental tuning is not up to par, then you'll drive your colleagues crazy. And in driving your colleagues crazy, you'll have no fun. So um, if the, the work in preparing for excerpts, if, if there's an endless amount of work that needs to be done on intonation and rhythm, And the the basics before you even get to the artistry. Um, So we have all of these tools available to us. We have good teachers; they're everywhere. I look at your resume, Jackie, and I I say, "My God!" When I was starting out in the er, early '70s, a school like yours would never have had someone with such an impressive resume and such fine education. And that you you you. At your university and gathered at your university, your younger players with tremendous confidence. So I look at the dozens and dola- dozens and dozens of universities and colleges where there's good good teaching. So students have they have constantly the possibility of going to their teacher's door and having a sounding board and please listen to this. What do I need to focus on? And they also have the ability nowadays to take that darn iPhone of theirs instead of checking Facebook to (laughs) put on on the recording function and uh, record themselves. And those are obvious things. There's no easy answers other than remembering that if you don't prioritize the basics, then you can't get to the artistry. And hopefully if you get to the artistry, then you're able to demonstrate what I'm uh, advocating in terms of this preparation with scores. I hope that... Give us a kind of a sc- clarity in answering your question.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Um, it is a double read podcast, so we have to ask about reads <laughs> and any um information you can give us regarding your approach to read making. We're always looking for advice. Uh what can you tell us as people
3: aspiring to make better and better reads? <laughs> okay. Well, let's see. If we've got about 25 hours to our podcast here, I can give you a real quick answer. (laughs) We don't have 24 hours, so let me me just uh, improvise on this a little bit. So readmaking is a big problem, and my approach to readmaking is kind of different than most people's. And it, it all came about because I was not a naturally gifted readmaker when I was a kid, um, and I had to kind of figure out everything. Sol Schoenbach, who I mentioned earlier, who had been my teacher at the Curtis Institute, knew absolutely nothing about reeds. I, I, I won't even begin to tell you, um, how unhelpful he was. He tried to be, but he was not a reed maker, and he was of that generation where he had his, uh, second Bassoonist or his concert player in the Philadelphia Orchestra make his reads for him He was kind of the last generation of artist performers who were not also read So I got no help from him. I did study for a couple of years with the uh, Legendary Lewis Skinner the read maker and he helped me in many ways, but What became obvious to me quite early on in my struggles with read making is I really didn't understand what the heck was going on and all I was doing was um, copying what I had been told, which, you know, try this shape, try this dimension, try this profile, try to make this sound. And it was all based upon uh, it, just repetitive uh, learned information, and none of it was based upon any kind of conception about how the reed and the bassoon interact. So I got interested quite early on in my career about, About, you know, just doing some basic reading about the acoustics of how wind instruments work. And over the years, I started to fill out my, my ability to visualize the interaction between bassoon and and reed. In my case, uh, oboe and reed in your case, Gabby. And I, I, I am intrigued to this day to see that the vast majority of young players are, are interested in finding easy solutions comes about because um, the, there's a real lack of understanding about what a reed actually is how it uh, responds to um, pressure variance with and the standing wave within the in the instruments themselves there's a real lack of understanding of how what sound actually is um, there's a general assumption that that the reed is the source of the sound and the instrument uh, amplifies the sound which is kind of an obvious thing, except it's not really true. Um, I find that... I'm fairly insistent with my students that I force them to really think in acoustical terms about what's going on, how the reed is a pressure-controlled valve. There's a, a relationship by which reeds are controlled by the acoustical properties of the bore of the instrument itself. You need to start understanding that and rethinking W- w- the role that a reed plays. I kind of think of reeds. Uh, of, of my bassoon plays the reed. The reed does not play the bassoon. That's a kind of a whole different uh, viewpoint. And you're probably scratching your head, thinking, "What the hell am I talking about?" And that's what, what takes the 25 hours is try to explain exactly what's going on. But there, there is some material out there. Okay, so let me put this in a little bit more concrete terms. Most young uh, college students um, are terrified of being given a possible stick read. And by that I mean if you make a really thick blank and give them a read that hardly curves at all and say, okay, you've got a concert to play in an hour, trim the street, play it, they will go into a state of, of depression and anxiety the likes of which has not been witnessed. The thing is, is that most college students rely upon the setup that their teacher gives them, that their profiles in their in their school read rooms are set up very specifically to provide a common success rate. And they end up simply copying what their teacher tells them to do. Now, there's a lot of great bassoon players who have learned to make reads this way. And, and when it works, it works great. But a lot of people suffer because they end up not... Having a clue of being able to analyze um, how airflow works, how the the blades of reeds respond to airflow, both in terms of flow from the player and in terms of acoustic variant from the bore of the bassoon. When you don't have this basic understanding, you're swimming all the time. So the first thing that I insist upon is is when students use my profilers, and I keep them at school and at home here, my profilers are set up to do about 60% of the work. So that everything is set up so that I, I don't, if I make 10 reads, Jackie, you know, a lot of people say, What's your success rate? Oh, well, maybe two, uh, two reads out of 10. My success rate is generally about 10 reads out of 10. And that's a kind of astounding thing, but that comes from the fact that first of all, if you're making reads and you're, you're using a profile that's designed to do almost 100% of the work, then that works well for certain pieces of cane. You've got pieces of cane that are too soft. You're going to throw pieces of cane out because they're over profiled, or they're under profiled, and you don't have the skill set to to follow through. So you're basically a lot of kids are throwing out large percentage of reads that, through no fault of the cane, cane, but merely because the um, the profile commonalities will not apply to to the to the variance within cane hardness and softness. So if you begin by Demanding of your students that they start with very stiff reads and learn how to trim them Half of those reads that get thrown away because they're over profile you get rid of that of that loss And then you're stuck with merely trying to understand what the process is So Jackie I don't know what your own uh, because you and I don't know each other I don't know whether you're in your own training you were given the analytical skills to trim really heavy reads, or whether in your, with your own teachers and with your own students, you kind of look for the easiest solution, which is to set up machines so that the, the, the product is not too far down the road. How would you answer that?
1: Uh, I would say I'm definitely uh, guilty of what you're describing, where my profiler does probably uh, between. Uh, Around 85% of the work, and my success rate is not as high as I would like it, definitely.
3: How often? I I find this very interesting because so much time is wasted on uh, messing around with machines, right? The blades get dull, the blades get chipped, uh, the student before you comes into the room and adjusts the profile, and then you don't know what to do. How um, much do you work with your own students in teaching them how to hand profile?
1: None, actually, and it's a skill that I don't have. And I was thinking as you were talking, because there are a lot of um, colleagues in the field who will use machines to test density and hardness and just kind of discard that, which doesn't work, which as someone who, you know, did not come up in economic privilege has always been hard for me to wrap my head around. But what you're describing is that you can accommodate that without uh, discarding it. By being able to work from a bigger place of uh, finishing it by hand, based on what the reed and cane needs, is what is is, am I understanding correctly?
3: You are absolutely. And I I just throw in. um, I I apologize for saying this, but I have made it a habit for about the last fifteen years that wherever I teach, um, I I supply cane to my students, unlimited amounts of cane. which really doesn't cost me very much because I buy directly from the growers to cane. You, you buy five kilos of cane that comes in for a couple hundred bucks, and there's, you know, you're not spending three dollars a stick, you're spending 25 cents a stick. So I, I just do that. And then the students never feel they have to be careful about the use of cane, and they make three times as many reads, and they make three times as many mistakes, which is good. And mm-hmm. therefore they're able to to you know to make advances because they're not concerned about the preciousness of the material. Okay. Having said that, and to continue on with, with this particular focus on on using your machines only to do part of the work, the, the great thing about using a profiler to do half the work rather than ninety percent of the work, or even more even better to do hand profiling, is that it forces not only the readmaker to develop a certain skill set with the tools, with sandpaper, with files, with knives, but more importantly, to have a visualization of what it is that they're looking for. What are the contours that they're looking for? So I'm just going to expand upon that a little bit because you asked for some general advice about readmaking. There are wide reads, there are narrow reads, there are soft reads, there are hard reads, there are people who play with a lot of embouchure, there are people who play with very little embouchure, and there's great playing to be found in all of these various styles. So the, the, there is commonality though between good reads on average of all of these designs, and it all comes down to how symmetrical and how well balanced your your approach is. If you accept my, my premise that there is nothing inherent in Arundo Donax that says when you put a built reed onto the end of the bassoon that the reed is going to know how to play the right string. I mean, that sounds ludicrous, except that in a kind of a holistic way, that's how we tend to approach things. We think that it is inherent within the cane that it's going to be able to play beautifully. But all the, all it is, is a little pressure valve, and the more systematically even and symmetrical you build them, the more the bassoon is going to be able to successfully play the reed. Huh. There's absolutely nothing in a bassoon reed that says, okay, C sharp comes from this part of the reed. That's not how reeds work. Low Ds don't come from a particular place in a reed. A whole reed is, is involved in a complex nonlinear uh, modalities of vibration that that cooperate with the needs of the bassoon in order to produce that C-sharp or that low D. And success will depend in for narrow reads, for wide reads, for heavy reads, for light reads. Success depends upon your ability to build these things with as smooth relationships and balance as possible. Because the great secret about successful readmaking is the fact that The better your initial skills are, the better your percentage outcomes are going to be. And when you are hand profiling and you are forced to really think, okay, what's the relationship from the tip to the back? What is the relationship with side to center? Do I want to build a read with a pronounced forward heart? Do I not want to have a forward heart? What is it that you want? You start building that into your visualization and into your hand profiling and in a remarkably quick period of time, you will begin to develop success that's completely different than the kind of success that you have if you're just accepting uh, a particular traditional approach to dimensions.
0: Great, that's wonderful. So we always love to ask, um, what is your favorite memory of a past performance? <laughs>
3: Oh, I'm a very lucky man, because I've had so many of them, and of course it's very hard to distinguish. So if I mention one, it's not because I couldn't also come up with about 300 others. (laughs) (laughs) I've just been very lucky. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, Stage of Royal Albert Hall with the World Orchestra for Peace with Gergiev conducting um, a, a Mahler Five. Transformative. Uh, performances which I've done. I probably have done the Beethoven Concerto with Pinker Zuckerman 25 or 30 times. Some, a couple of these performances were absolutely mesmerizing. Many performances of Mozart Piano Concerto, um, some of the, the great wind-centered piano concerti. It's very hard to be selective. Um, your listeners may not know much about the orchestra that I play in, the National Arts Centre Orchestra here in Ottawa in Canada. Uh, It's a little smaller than standard orchestra. Um, We have about 62 players on contract, and we often will play larger repertoire with maybe 75 or 80 players, but we don't generally play a lot of 100-player repertoire, so we do very little Bruckner. We only do occasional Mahler, uh, we, we are doing some recitals, stars, but the orchestra is primarily a classical orchestra, and we are at our best when we're playing Haydn, Mozart, Schubert, Mendelssohn, and even Tchaikovsky. So um, I love this repertoire. I'm really happy that the end of my career is spent playing Pastoral Symphony of Beethoven mm-hmm. rather than Guru Leader. Uh, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm happier with playing that kind of comfortable what you describe, Jackie, is the a, a, a classical Western canon. It makes me happiest, and my my memorable performances are when I'm in that great comfort zone, and I have I'm playing it in a group that respects balance, and there's transparency and support at the same time. So it's not so much that I would say that they are sort of specific performances, but an idealized. Orchestral environment, which I'm really fortunate at this point in my life, I have quite often here, that this orchestra has a little bit of the kind of self-identity that Cleveland Orchestra has, in terms of playing with great care and balance, um, and we 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 play great Schumann. It takes a good orchestra to play Schumann symphonies. If you had asked me for the first thirty years of my life, what repertoire I hate most playing, I say the fourth symphonies of Robert Schumann. But <laughs> Nowadays, I'd say I love to play Schumann because I'm in an orchestra now which knows how to balance and and respects transparency and knows how to make some of these more challenging orchestrations work. So I'm I'm kind of fudging on answering your question, Galeen. (laughs) I'm
1: sorry. (laughs) Um, you've, You've addressed this quite a bit already beautifully, but what advice do you have for a young Aspiring bassoonist who would like to have a career like yours?
3: You know the careers like mine are are difficult because um, The the opportunities are not increasing in professional orchestras. We hope that they will maintain but the opportunities We're not seeing more and more symphony orchestras of anything. We see orchestras being challenged So nowadays you have to kind of define what your career is going to be. Only a very small percentage are going to – either aspire to or have success in a traditional symphony orchestra career. Nowadays, you need to be good at creating your own concert series. You need to be good at uh, marketing. You need to be good at figuring out new repertoire, at outreach. You need to be good at speaking to audiences. There's a whole bunch of skill sets which are much broader and of greater interest uh, than simply being able to play Beethoven Fourth Symphony well. So... Uh, I guess the 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 answer that I have is if your passion is a traditional orchestra career Get ready to be in perhaps the number one competitive field in the world In terms of the number of people and the number of positions available. It's really hard if you do well at it It can be a fabulous career, but the numbers are stacked up against you so Pursue that goal, but balance balance it with uh, your broader skill sets as a human being. Hopefully, you are not ignoring your ability to write and express yourself well. Hopefully, you are not ignoring your ability to organize your time well. The wonderful thing about the self-discipline that creates a great orchestral player is this. That very self-discipline can create an individual who is game and and open to careers that they would have not expected to ever be on the horizon for them I am often surprised when when if I have a former student contact me and say hey I want to let you know what I'm doing I'm now vice president of marketing at this whatever kind of firm and they will think that perhaps in the back of my mind I'm disappointed because they're not principal bassoon in the Philadelphia Orchestra. But the, I couldn't. The truth is absolutely opposite. All of us are interested in our success as human beings, and to think that that success can only be defined by pursuing a narrow path like symphony orchestra auditions is ludicrous. You you use the time as a developing musician. To develop your, develop your intellectual horizon, your creative horizon, your communicative abilities, and your interpersonal skills in order that you're going to be prepared to make, make a success out of, out of a career path that may be as strange to you right now as you could possibly imagine.
0: I want to take your answer and hand letter it and put it all over my wall in my office. That was so beautifully said. Christopher Millard, it has been such a joy to have you on the podcast. Would you um, end by telling us um, what fun and exciting projects you have on the horizon and where our listeners can find you on the Internet?
3: Well, uh, I a, a, very interesting I keep an extremely low internet profile anyone who knows me will know I'm, I'm a little bit odd about this I don't do Facebook I don't do Twitter uh, I studiously avoid any of my performances being put onto YouTube I'm, I'm very old fashioned about protecting, protecting my pr- privacy as a performer the, well, there are lots of recordings that I have made, uh, you may have some of them, and um, I tend to uh, focus my my interest in, not in, I, I, I'm really lucky because at my age, I don't need to be networking for a career. I just do the work that I want to do, and I'm doing very much the work that I want to do in these latter few years of my career playing in a really good orchestra. So there's not a lot of access to my stuff other than my commercial recordings, which which are available. Uh, there's, there's half a dozen of them out there, and they're easy to, to download for nothing. Uh, You asked me about upcoming performances. Uh, Today's the 5th of September that we're recording this interview, and uh, we begin rehearsals um, after our August summer break with my orchestra. So we have a week of rehearsals starting, and we have here in Ottawa uh, a really big patch of Finnish music uh, coming up in the next uh, month. We have... Four or five of the symphonies of Sibelius. We have some of the lemon kind of music. We have Tapiola. We have Sariahu. Um, our music director, the very gifted Alexander Shelley, and our principal guest conductor, the Finn John Sturgaards, are both here, and we're focusing on uh, Nordic repertoire for the next month. So I'm always happy to play Sibelius interesting that in my early career Sibelius was ignored. Nowadays Sibelius is front and center with most symphony orchestras. He, his music has gone through a well-deserved revival, and uh, it's, it, it is genius at the highest level, so I'm really looking forward to making music with my colleagues here in this fabulous orchestra, and uh, I guess that I'm, that's what I'm looking forward to, is, is my daily work.
1: Well, and speaking to your lower Internet profile, shout out to and special thanks to Carol Lamore and Nadina Mackie-Jackson, who hooked me up with your contact information so we could bring um, our listeners this great interview, and they both asked me to tell you hello. Oh, well, thank you.
3: And, you know, all of my 60-odd podcasts for the National Arts Center are still downloadable on iTunes The search word is NACOCAST, N-A-C-O-CAST, and all of those are there, and there's a lot of – these date back from 2007 to 2013, and there's lots of stuff there. If you want to hear more about about my thoughts about music and conductors and repertoire in life, uh, that stuff is still available.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. A real
3: pleasure to speak with both of you, and good luck with the projects.
1: Hope you enjoyed that interview with Christopher Millard. Don't forget to follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We are um, teetering precariously toward four digits in the followers. So come on, give us some love if you haven't already.
0: We're going to do something fun if we get to a 1,000.
1: Definitely. And you can listen to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube, or Google Play.
0: Our next episode is going to feature the one, the only Nick Stovall, Principal Oboist of the National Symphony Orchestra in Washington DC. It's an awesome interview and we can't wait to share it with all of you. See you next time. Boop, boop.